You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hey, it's Jordan. A really quick note before we start. If you would like to support humanitarian relief efforts in the Middle East, Rogers, which owns this program, is going to match donations to the Canadian Red Cross's special fund. Canadians can donate five bucks to support Canadian Red Cross's Middle East humanitarian crisis appeal by texting the word Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, to 20222 in English or 30333 in French. Anything you can give, Rogers will match until October 31st, 2023. So if you're looking to help some people out who could really use it, this is a good way to do it. Less than one year ago, British Columbia began a project that many hoped would destigmatize drug use and save lives. The province decriminalized possession of small amounts of hard drugs. The move was undoubtedly progressive. Two weeks ago, nine months into this experiment, the province took a different approach. On Thursday, the BCNDP tabled legislation that would prohibit drug consumption at parks, beaches, sports fields, and within six meters of bus stops and building entrances, including those to businesses and residences. Now, for years, images and evidence of public drug use have played a starring role in any push for more stringent policy. Just picture a dirty syringe lying just off to the side of a kid's playground. And you know what I mean. It is an understandable emotional reaction. The question, though, is if that is a realistic place to legislate from. And if the B.C. government can try to address a spiraling overdose crisis from apparently totally opposite sides of policy goals, can the decriminalization of certain drugs, followed by the banning of their use, basically anywhere they are used, actually accomplish anything? Or will it just anger everyone on all sides while also failing to save lives? What exactly is in this new legislation? And... Listen, whatever you think of it, emotional or rational, progressive, conservative, the real question here is, will this law actually make anything better? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Lindsay Richardson is an associate professor in sociology at the University of British Columbia and a Canada Research Chair in Social Inclusion and Health Equity. And that means we often ask her to help us make sense of drug policy that appears to contradict itself, Lindsay? Indeed. I mean, I think there's a recent development in British Columbia that sends a bit of a mixed message. Okay, well, let's start with what it is before we get into how it'll actually play out. BC is introducing something called the Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act. What is it? Well, I think first we should talk a little bit about the context here, just very briefly. Sure. About how in British Columbia, beginning in January 31st of this year, Health Canada granted an exemption under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act so that adults in British Columbia aren't subject to criminal charges for the personal possession of small amounts of certain illegal drugs. And so this is more broadly known as decriminalization, and it decriminalizes the possession of up to 2.5 grams total of opioids, methamphetamine, cocaine, 
NMDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy. And we all recognize this is an important change that has potentially wide-ranging consequences to the criminalization of people who use drugs, mm-hmm. right? It could reduce their exposure to the criminal justice system, uh, reduce the harms from criminalization, including stigma. And decriminalization is important. We don't totally know whether it's worked yet or what kinds of impact it has had, but it's important to remember that it doesn't address the toxic drug supply, which is arguably the main driver of the overdose crisis, and it doesn't address other factors that increase the risk of overdose, things like poverty and homelessness. And so there's this common narrative circulating right now that decriminalization has failed because overdose hasn't decreased, but decriminalization isn't designed to address overdose because it doesn't tackle the toxic drug supply. And when we think about decriminalization and this new legislation, you know, decriminalization is one initiative among many that needs to happen to address the overdose crisis. And a lot of those other changes and investments also haven't happened. And this new legislation, the Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act, really points to the failure to do those other things that are necessary to address drug-related harm. So what does the act do specifically? So it does four things. It explicitly restricts the consumption of illegal substances in an articulated set of public spaces. It articulates police response to when they find people using illegal substances in those spaces. So they can ask a person who's using drugs to cease that activity or leave the area Or if a person refuses this direction to stop the activity and leave, the police officer can choose to proceed with enforcement measures as appropriate. And those enforcement measures include arrest, fines, incarceration, et cetera. The third thing it does is it explicitly states police's ability to seize those drugs and to destroy them uh, when they're found in possession of a person who doesn't comply with police direction. And the fourth thing it does is it requires local governments to consult with their medical health officers and their regional health authority before they consider any additional bylaws regarding public consumption of illegal drugs. And so the legislation changes our emphasis in our response to drug use from a public health-focused response, which was what decriminalization was trying to do, to a criminal justice-oriented response. And it's, it's symbolic on many levels in terms of that switch or that change in emphasis. And in my view, it's also pretty deeply cynical. So instead of responding to this catastrophic and entrenched public health emergency, it's a response to public perceptions of what's going on in response to that emergency. Hmm. And it targets people who are poor or unstably housed who don't have private spaces in which to use drugs. And so I am often thinking of public drug use as a symptom of our broader failure as a society to adequately support people who use drugs and who are socioeconomically disadvantaged. Well, that's why I wanted to talk to you and to have you walk me through how this plays out with drug users and how it does or doesn't uh, address the crisis that we're facing. Isn't it already illegal to consume illegal substances in public? Like, this, you're not supposed to do this with alcohol or pot either. Right. And I think this is a really important point, that the exemption for decriminalization that was provided by Health Canada allows for the decriminalization of possession, mm-hmm. but not use. And so public consumption wasn't a part of decriminalization measures. And 
what this legislation is essentially doing then is reinforcing and signaling an intention to control and restrict people who use drugs. And importantly, my understanding from the legal opinion that I've read on the topic, I'm not a lawyer, so take that into consideration, but my understanding is that this legislation goes a step further than the criminal law did prior to the decriminalization pilot. I see. So it additionally imposes sanctions under BC's Provincial Offenses Act. So before, people in BC couldn't be imprisoned because they defaulted paying a fine. But this legislation allows for a period of incarceration. So someone convicted under this legislation can be subject to a fine of up to $2,000 or six months imprisonment or both. That is, that is my understanding. And so not only is it this symbolic reinforcement of how we police and surveil and monitor and control people who use drugs, but it goes further than the law did before decriminalization. How do this act and uh, the decriminalization project in BC work together or not work together? I know you're not saying we've succeeded or failed with decriminalization, but is it an admission by the government that they think they've failed? I don't think it is, right? I think it is too soon to tell, and I think everyone knows that it's too soon to tell whether or not decriminalization worked or not. Well, what might the government be thinking with these two seemingly diametric approaches to the problem? Well, I think. It's really important to be clear about what the province is saying about what they want this to do and what we think might actually happen because of this legislation. And so, you know, the official statement from the province says, you know, they want to create clear rules about public drug use and align guidance around public drug use with tobacco, alcohol, and cannabis. Although it's important to recognize that they're different because one set of substances is illegal and one set of substances isn't. Right. And they also talk about it enabling police to redirect people to safer spaces where they can be connected, for example, to healthcare services and treatment. Though I think it's important to recognize that this isn't articulated in the legislation. You know, police already have the ability to redirect and connect people to services and treatment. They say that it encourages people who use drugs to use safely at local overdose prevention sites, which um, seems like a noble intent, but you know, there aren't enough overdose prevention sites in enough places to really support people adequately. And they say it's going to help people feel safer in their communities and keep community spaces free of illegal drug use, right? And so there is a narrative in what the province is saying that links this new legislation to public health objectives and about keeping community spaces free. And the actual legislation really is about enforcement of public drug use and police activities related to public drug use and how how that's going to play out moving forward. Well, I do want to talk about how non-users in British Columbia might see this legislation, and I think you kind of got at it there. So ask about the reality of it. You know, how prevalent is drug use in public spaces? Do we know? We don't. We don't. It really is very difficult to assess scientifically and empirically. You know, we're not going to set up observers in every public space in every park. Sure. And I think it's important to note that people often react really negatively to physical evidence of public drug use, something like a discarded syringe or something like that. And I would reinforce that drug use in public spaces can really be understood as a symptom of our broader policy and support failures. 
you know, like the provision of adequate housing, the provision of adequate drug use services. And so often we vilify the symptom and not the cause. I wonder if this policy will have an impact with people who are uh, and can be uh, preoccupied and made to feel unsafe by, as you mentioned, you know, the presence of drug use in public places. It's one of those places it really feels like where anecdotal evidence goes an awful long way. Do you know what I mean? I, I do know what you mean. Those anecdotes can be very powerful and nobody wants people to be using drugs or discarding syringes in places where children are playing, for example, or in sports parks, or no one is advocating for that. And so, you know, when we think about people who might be broadly supportive of people who use drugs in terms of access to services and housing, but might not be comfortable with drug use happening in shared public space, right? you know, it's really important to emphasize that we're not even close to being in the ballpark of adequately resourcing services to meet the needs of people who use drugs. And that it's the same thing with adequate housing, right? I mean, the the most recent homelessness count that came out basically at the same time as this legislation was announced reported a dramatic increase in homelessness and an intensification of the the need for support services. And so public spaces often represent one of the only places that people have to go. Yeah. And restricting their ability to be in those public spaces means that you're not going to solve the problem. It doesn't go away. It just will be displaced. Or it'll go somewhere else. And there are real harms to displacing public drug use or displacing people who use drugs from the places where they are seeking to use. When you look at the places that are in this legislation, you know, how specific are they? And where will that use go if police are criminalizing this behavior in, in the public spaces that are set out in the act? So the public spaces that are set out in the Act refer specifically to the substances that are covered in the exemption from Health Canada for decriminalization. So it explicitly refers to opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, or and MDMA. And the places include, you know, being within six meters from building entrances. That includes businesses and residential buildings. Being within six meters of a bus stop being within 15 meters of playgrounds, spray and wading pools and skate parks, and at parks, beaches, and sports fields. And so you can imagine that it is very difficult to find a place that isn't captured by all of those uh, directives or stipulations. Yeah. So that's the first part. The second part, in terms of thinking about where that drug use will go, in general, legislation of this kind or crackdowns or restrictions on, on drug use that are in this sort of thread or spirit really result in people trying to hide their drug use in other ways. And so what that means is people will go to more hidden places that might be further away from emergency responders, for example, or being able to be found if you do overdose. So places that are uh, more clandestine. And one of the things that happens when people try to conceal their public drug use is they will use a loan, mm-hmm. right, which we know is a central risk factor for overdose. We know that people will often rush injections. And so 
you know, for someone who's using drugs, they might initially try a small amount so they can, they can understand the potency of what they're using so they don't use too much. And when they rush an injection, they don't have the chance to do that. And so they, that, again, increases the risk of overdose. They also might not be able to prepare their drugs properly or clean the place that they're injecting in the skin, clean their skin properly. And so that might result in uh, missing a vein or uh, an unsanitary injection that increases the likelihood of, of an abscess. And so what we can see is when you clamp down on people's ability to use, it pushes them further underground. It results in them rushing their drug use, which has particular harms. And I think it's really easy to say that this is going to result in the disproportionate policing of certain communities and particularly people with lower incomes or people who don't have secure housing. When you say that this kind of act drives that behavior underground, which makes it more dangerous to the user and simply gets it out of sight, no matter how risky it is, the cynic in me would suggest that's the point. There are many people who think that is the point, who, as long as they don't have to see it, that, you know, drug use sort of doesn't exist or they prefer not to acknowledge that it exists. So we've been in a public health emergency for so many years now that people have become numb to the fact that it is still going on. But it is still going on. And I think we are more comfortable when we don't have to be confronted by things that make us uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean those things have gone away. And it is our responsibility as a society to find a way to protect people who are disadvantaged and who need supports and need help. And decriminalization was really a step in the right direction, even though the decriminalization exemption was very flawed. We've already talked about that in a previous discussion. Even though it was flawed, it's still important. And this legislation, while it doesn't necessarily do a lot that is new, it seems much more like a political or a symbolic reinforcement of, you know, what people would like to see in public spaces. It's disconnected from what is actually happening in those public spaces and what happens when you police those public spaces in a particular way. Assuming that this government and frankly, lots of governments in Canada and around the world are, are not suddenly going to solve the overdose crisis by uh, managing to house everyone and have enough spots in uh, clinics and programs for everyone who needs them. Is there a way to do those things uh, that doesn't involve a massive overhaul to our social safety net? I am, I am not sure that there is. I think there are small gestures. I think you know, not symbolically overcriminalizing already disadvantaged populations is a good place to start. But I think we really have to reckon with the fact that effectively addressing the crisis isn't simple. It, there isn't a silver bullet. Decriminalization is not going to solve it, right? And so we really need to reckon with the fact that we need a safe, regulated, accessible drug supply, in my view. We need to address the social and economic drivers of drug-related harm, right? We need to develop a system of care that is accessible and culturally appropriate. And we need to recognize that, you know, pushing people around from place to place doesn't make the emergency go away. And I wish there were small, simple things that could have large, sweeping changes, but I don't think that any small programmatic change is going to solve 
a problem that policy creates. What happens next? Do we know for sure this act will pass? Has there been any resistance to it, any changes to it proposed? And if not, when will it start being enforced? I think we have every reason to think that this is going to pass. It was tabled by a majority government. There's public support because of perceptions around public substance use. It really feels like a response to many actors, municipal governments from across the province, public outcry against public drug use. It feels like a response to a number of people that are important constituencies for the government. There has been predictable political opposition, also opposition in the community by drug user advocacy groups, by legal advocacy groups, many service providers for people who use drugs who have really rightly pointed out the lack of other services and how these kinds of legislation further harms for most disadvantaged people. And that municipalities that are calling for restrictions on public drug use often block these services in their towns and small cities. And so I think this will pass, and I don't think there's anything that's going to dramatically change the legislation as tabled. Uh, And when we think about this in the broader context of decriminalization, you know, we are essentially sort of chipping away at the margins here of what's really needed in order to reduce overdose, to reduce drug-related harm, and to reduce the social and economic drivers of drug-related harm that include public drug use. And until we address these things, you know, we're going to see people using drugs publicly. You know, this was illegal before this legislation. It's illegal after the legislation. I'm not sure that a public statement around public drug use in the form of sort of signaling increased criminal monitoring of public drug use is really going to address the problem. And so until we make those broader changes, we're going to continue to see people dying from the toxic drug supply in the way that we have been. Dr. Richardson, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate you helping us try to figure this out. It is my pleasure to speak with you and thank you for your attention to the issue. Lindsay Richardson, Canada Research Chair in Social Inclusion and Health Equity, Associate Professor at UBC. That was the big story for more, including a couple of discussions with Dr. Richardson, one about safe supply, one, as she mentioned, about decriminalization, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also let us know how you feel by writing to us at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or by calling us and leaving a voicemail, 416-935-5935. You can follow The Big Story on Twitter if you still use that app. We are at thebigstoryfpn. And of course, if you want to hear this podcast on your smart speaker or any voice assistant, Just ask it to play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.